0: Isaiah chapter 54. We're going to try and cover two full chapters tonight, and you'll see why as we journey through them. But before we do that, I want to remind you that on the 22nd of this month, which is a Monday, uh, we're going to begin to open up some of our uh, ancillary ministries and study. So that would be women's, men's, couples. And our bridge ministry, so they'll all be meeting on their regular time. You can see that in the NOW bulletin. So uh, if you're normally going to those studies, we want to encourage you to get in the habit of coming back out uh, and fellowshipping together uh, with other believers as we get through uh, this pandemic. I got some really good news today from the health department. Um, We have crested and we're very much descending in the infection rate. And What that means is, what we're seeing, we're still seeing a high rate of people perishing uh, from uh, the COVID virus, but that is because of the infection rates that we had over a month ago, because about 1.5% of people who actually get it actually die from it. Because we were in the 30,000 cases a day range, uh, we ended up with an awful lot of people very seriously ill, and so we're now... Cresting over that hill, and hopefully, we'll continue to descend uh, in both infection rates and then also hospitalizations and deaths. But I want to share a story with you, and I'm going to ask you then to stand and we'll pray together. Um, Got an email this morning um, that came from about 100 yards that way. Uh, It came from a church that probably some of you have noticed, you maybe have driven by on Vermont and noticed that right next door to us is one family chapel. It happens to be a Korean language chapel uh, church, and the pastor there, um, Pastor Brian Chang, was one of my students at Calvary Chapel Bible College about 15 years ago. Uh, his wife sent us an email. Um, Brian is on life support right now from COVID. Uh, He was an otherwise completely healthy man, and he is now intubated and in an induced coma, and they're giving him a basically 50-50 chance that he might survive. He's got two children, a church that's depending on him. So I'm going to ask you to stand, and we're going to pray for Brian, for Lisa, their children, and for God to do a miracle. Because our God is still the God of the impossible. Amen? Uh, He can raise up the dead. He can certainly save the living. And so let's join together in prayer and ask God to save our brother Brian. Father, we come to you uh, as that one family. Lord, what a beautiful name because truly that is what your word says about us as the church. There is one faith, one hope, one Lord over all. We're all in the same family, adopted into it by you, Jesus, through your grace. And so we lift up Brian right now to you as he's laying there in a coma in little company of Mary. We pray, Lord, right now you cause his lungs to begin to function. Lord, what the doctors can't do, you can And we pray that you would spare him, that you would heal him, that you would touch him, and that you would radically do a miracle in the midst of this great, difficult time. We pray for Lisa as she sits on that bench in front of the hospital, unable to see her husband, to even touch his hand. Lord, we ask for incredible peace over her life. Lord, they've been together and married for 30 years. And we pray that you would be the strength that bonds them together right now. We pray for their children. God, that you would protect them from the enemy as the enemy comes and tries to steal away all that you've done in their life. Lord, as it looks like this is a hopeless situation, would you, the God of all hope, a wonderful counselor and the mighty God, step into their situation? In Jesus' name, we ask that you would heal our brother and raise him up from that bed. Continue his ministry, Lord. Use him for your glory. Be with the family, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen and amen. As take your seats, take out your Bibles. We have chapters 54 and 55. In chapter 55, I'll rest a couple of my favorite verses when we get there. But I want to remind you of where we just finished. We just finished this incredible messianic prophecy of the servant who would suffer and die. And it's in light of that suffering servant that the prophet Isaiah now hearing from heaven above focuses in on the work that that suffering servant would one day do. You see, Jesus is very much alive, amen? And so as as Isaiah presents the picture of the servant who would give his life, who would go after the wandering sheep, who would be chastised, who would be beaten, bruised, ultimately put to death, pierced for our iniquities. He's also the one who can save to the uttermost, exactly as the writer of Hebrews in chapter 7 would say. And it is also he who forever makes intercession for us. I have zero doubt that when we just prayed together corporately, I have zero doubt that the God of heaven and earth, I don't doubt one second that he was listening and that he is able. Amen? He is able. And so Isaiah now presents to us a vision that's looking ahead. And he's going to be looking at a couple of groups of people, three of them specifically. We'll get to two of them tonight. And he's going to speak specifically to Israel. Israel has been under oppression as far as the Bible is concerned. In the book of Isaiah, they've come from being chastised by Assyria. They're now in captivity or about to go into captivity in Babylon. They're not doing well. Life for them is much like life for us. You could say they were facing a pandemic as well but a pandemic of Babylonian origins. And God now speaks to them through the prophet that one day they would be completely restored. And while this had a absolute point in time, because we know, because of the writings of Ezra the prophet, that not only did the children of Israel survive the Babylonian captivity, but they came back and rebuilt the temple They they again dwelled in the land, but we also know that by AD 70 they would be completely kicked out of the land. The temple would be destroyed. And so there is yet a future to this restoration that we see in chapter 54. And it begins in verse 1, Sing, O barren, you who have not borne. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not labored with child." For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. This may sound strange to you, but this is, from a Jewish perspective, one of the worst things that could ever happen to any family is that they be childless. Very specifically, that there wouldn't be a male heir to the family line. And so while the children of Israel were in captivity, so many of the men were killed There were very few men left when they came back from the captivity to even work on the wall. And so you had the entirety of all of the Jewish people, everyone in their own home, working on that wall, as Nehemiah declares for us, as Ezra speaks to. Enlarge the place of your tent and let them stretch out your curtains of your dwellings. And do not spare. Lengthen your cords and lengthen your stakes and strengthen them. For you shall expand at the right and to the left, and your descendants will inherit the nations, and make desolate the cities that are inhabited. Now, when you listen to this, and you start thinking about what's being implied here, it shows a country that's going to expand and branch out and push forth. And as you can imagine, the Jewish people are thinking, "Well, we're we're going to be great in the world." And what happens? They come back to Jerusalem, the Greeks come, the Romans come, Titus destroys the temple, the diaspora happens, they're kicked out of their own land, they don't even dwell in the land for almost 2,000 years for the most part, and it won't be until May 14th of 1948 that the Jewish people actually even come back into their own land. Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed and neither be disgraced. Imagine reading that as a Jewish person who's trapped in the Warsaw Ghetto in Poland during the Second World War. you watched your children carted off in a cattle car. Auschwitz-Birkenau. You'll not be put to shame. You've seen six million Jews murdered, stacked like cordwood of dead bodies, and then incinerated. Think about it for a second. You think you might be wondering whether God is good or whether he keeps his promises to Israel? Would there be any chance that Israel would be restored? Imagine what they were thinking at the end of the Second World War. Maybe maybe this isn't true. For you will not forget the shame of your youth. You will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And so God steps into this picture to remind them of who he is in the face of what's happened and will happen to them. And your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, for he is called the God of the whole earth. Might be good for us to remember remember that tonight. For the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when you were refused, says the Lord, For a mere moment I have forsaken you. From God's perspective, from AD 70 in the destruction of the temple under Titus Flavius Vespasianus to 1948 in God's economy is a mere moment. It's just a blip on the radar screen of life, if you will. It was a mere moment. But with everlasting kindness, I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. For this is like the waters of Noah to me. For I have sworn that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth. And so I have sworn that I would not be angry with you nor rebuke you. When you look at the history of the Jewish people, this very clearly has to still be future to us in its ultimate fulfillment because they have yet to reap the bounty of the Lord's goodness. For the mountain shall depart, the hills shall be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has mercy on you. O afflicted one, tossed of tempest, and not comforted, behold, I will lay your stones with colorful gems, your foundations with sapphires, I will make your pinnacles of rubies, your gates of crystals, and your walls of precious stones. Oddly enough, strangely enough, this sounds a whole lot like the new Jerusalem that's found in Revelation chapter 19, 20, 21. As the Lord comes again. Your children shall be taught by the Lord. Hmm. It isn't exactly what you find in Israel if you go there today. The great shall be at peace with your children. Absolutely not what you find in the world today, though currently there is an air of hope in the Middle East with some of the latest events that have unfolded, beginning with President Trump moving the Embassy of the United States of America to Jerusalem, announcing that the Golan Heights was indeed part of Israel. A couple of peace treaties that's now allowed travel back and forth between some of the Arab countries. It sounds like, perhaps, but we know what the Bible says in the last days. There's going to be one that's going to come, and he's going to make a final peace treaty. That peace treaty will be with Israel and the world. His name is the Antichrist, It'll look like things are going well. Makes you kind of wonder what's around the corner, doesn't it? In righteousness you shall be established. How is anyone made righteous, church? Is there any other way? Then this is pretty clearly talking about salvation for national Israel, isn't it? In righteousness you shall be established. The temple was never righteous. It was intended to be. But actually Jesus said, you have made my father's house a den of what? Thieves. Why? Because they began to worship the temple itself. We're actually going to be looking at that. A couple of weeks. For indeed, from terror, for it shall not come near you. For indeed, they shall surely assemble, but not because of me. And whoever assembles against you shall fall back for your sake. Behold, I have created the blacksmith who blows coals in the fire, who brings forth an instrument for his work. I have created the spoiler to destroy. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. For this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. Remember that Isaiah actually saw the Jewish people exactly as the Lord intended as the servants of the Lord. Remember, the gospel came to the Jew first, and then the Gentile. They were intended to be the bearer of the gospel. Isaiah sees that picture. And their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. This is a picture of restoration for national Israel. And so we'll look at tonight, national Israel, and also the Gentile nations as we get into chapter 55, but Isaiah is using marriage in this image. And remember that as far as God was concerned, Israel was married to him. You can see this and you see the use of the word widowhood and all these kinds of things. Jeremiah uses the same uh, metaphor as, as does Hosea. Hosea actually uses it in even a deeper way. But the picture here is from God's perspective, just like the church is the bride of Christ... So Israel was supposed to be married to God, and that's why he took such great offense to their chasing after false gods, to going the wrong direction. That's why they were chastened in the first place. Sometimes people say, well, you know, God was kind of mean to Israel. No, Israel was given chance after chance after chance after chance, and God has still given them chances, and now he is still going to keep his covenants with them. And so from God's perspective, he's been very gracious and very kind. He sent Messiah to them. They rejected Messiah, but that doesn't mean that God isn't still going to woo Israel back to Himself. And so they're going to be restored to that fruitfulness. And what kind of restoration is it? Notice what it says here it's joy, it's singing, it's songs unto the Lord, it's faithfulness to the Lord. And so in that sense, God still has this amazing plan for national Israel. One of the craziest things that happens to you when you travel to Israel today is that you realize that the whole country is largely secular. In some ways, they're very westernized. You wander around Tel Aviv, you would think you're here in L.A., in fact. It's it's very unusual when you think about in your mind's eye, you're thinking about this ancient city. And this ancient civilization. And this incredible Jewish culture. But for the most part, Israel is largely secular and non-religious. But it won't always be that way. God is working on the hearts of the Jewish people. And so he gives them a fear not promise, which he's already done a number of times in chapters 41, 43. But he gives them reasons that they should not fear. Notice the first one there in verse 4. Their sins are going to be forgiven. The reason that I don't fear tonight, even death, is my sins are forgiven. My sins are forgiven. I'm going to heaven. If I die tonight, I know exactly where I'm going to wake up. I take my last breath here. It's going to be my first breath there. Simultaneously, I'm just going to go, Oh, hey, Jesus, how are you doing? I'm not trying to be irreligious there. I'm just simply saying it's like it's absent from the body, present with the Lord. Amen? I don't know exactly how that works out. I just know where I'm going. And so when God forgives our sin, exactly as he says there in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. I believe that. The Jewish people right now do not That's why they still keep the feast days. That's why they still believe in the Day of Atonement. That is why they go through these elaborate religious rituals to try and please God still to this day. They do not believe in the personal redemption of an individual. They believe that through national Israel, at least once a year their sins are atoned for on Yom Kippur. And so this is obviously looking forward to a time when Israel experiences what you and I experience, which is personal forgiveness. Our sins are actually forgiven, not just put away. Not just God's wrath assuaged for a day or two or for a week or a month. Or if you're really good, maybe you last four or five months after the Day of Atonement, your your sins have been taken away and the scapegoat's gone and you're like, wow, I feel good right now. There's a second reason that's here. Notice what it is there in verses five and six. It's the steadfast love of the Lord. Anybody else thankful for the love of the Lord tonight? That the Lord loves me. That while I was yet sinning, Christ died for me. The Jewish people have yet to really experience that type of love as a whole. Of course, individual Jewish people have come to faith in Christ, and they still do and can. But there's going to become a, a time when they're no longer going to rest and trust in trying to put a temple back on the Temple Mount, even though they're going to be successful. There will be a third temple. Right now there's no temple, but there will be a third one. And in fact, Jesus is going to come back while that temple still stands on the temple mount. Because the Antichrist will have offered up his own image inside of that temple and demanded that the world worship him. And for those of you that are freaking out over the coronavirus vaccine being somehow Uh, attached to the mark of the beast. Can I just tell you something? If you're here and you've listened in this church for any period of time, we believe in the rapture of the church here. The Antichrist does not rise until after the church is raptured. And the mark of the beast isn't even revealed until the Antichrist comes. So you don't have to worry about inadvertently taking a vaccine and somehow ending up with the mark of the beast. It can't happen. So, stop listening to the fools that are on this earth that are saying dumb things like that. It's idiotic. It's nonsensical. If you just simply read your Bible, we're not to have that kind of fear. He's actually delivered us from that. We're to be of a sound mind, amen? Not supposed to be walking, oh, I might have taken the mark of the beast somehow. The mark of the beast is given to those who desire to worship the beast. I'm pretty sure none of you are going to fall in that category tonight. A third reason for this confidence. The dependable promises of God. Like he's not appointed you unto wrath but unto salvation. How about that one? For the Jewish people. He says I'm going to have mercy upon you with everlasting kindness, and he uses an example. Now look at the example. You remember the flood of Noah? Do you remember what I said I wouldn't do? I wouldn't ever destroy the earth by flood again. Oddly, strangely enough, the Lord has never destroyed the earth again by a flood. Amen? So if he kept that, that's a pretty big promise, I think. If he's kept that one, don't you think he's gonna keep the rest of them? What God says he can be trusted to do Look, God spanked the children of Israel. Thankfully, God has spanked me. Anybody else in here thankful for the Lord's spankings? Amen. Raise your hand. If you haven't, if you're not, you need to raise your hand. You should be thankful for the Lord's spanking. Here's why they may hurt, but they don't destroy. They may be painful, but they're instructive. They're not designed to harm you indefinitely. They're designed to hurt you so you change your attitude, change your ways, and change your direction. And so he's he's saying to them, look, I'm just trying to get your attention. The reason that you are going into captivity is, is because you've gone the wrong way. I want you to go the right way. The reason I chastise your forebearers is because they did the wrong thing. God's history with the children of Israel was always when they sinned, they got whooped. Why? Because God loves them. Why do you think your Bible tells you that God chastens those whom he loves, and if he does not chasten you, he does not love you? Because he loves you. So He doesn't let you get away with stuff. The language here may seem extravagant to you, but it's not extravagant. His promises are dependable, including building a city for them. And if you read Revelation 21, which is the actual appearance of this new Jerusalem, you're going to find there's a lot of similarities between what Isaiah says here and what John sees as the new Jerusalem descending from heaven. God's going to be faithful. Now I can tell you this, that Jerusalem is not in Jerusalem right now and never has been yet. But as surely as God has promised that he will forgive our sins, so surely God has promised that there will be a new Jerusalem. There will also be a new heaven and a new earth, by the way, and you're also going to get a new body that's suited for heaven. Amen? Those are promises. You can trust God with these things. And so he simply says, look, I'm going to rebuild your city. I'm going to restore your city. Now, if you were to go there at the time that Isaiah was writing these things, you would have laughed that Jerusalem was even called a city. Relative to what you know about a city, it was a small hillside encampment encircled by a wall about that tall that was made with stones that were basically natural stones. They were not cut, jointed stones. There were no parapet walls. There were no giant buttresses. There were no fortifications of any kind. It was basically a stack of rocks that ringed a city. In fact, Nehemiah says it was a broad wall. And As you go to Jerusalem today, you can actually see a section of that exact wall that's been excavated. It's about 16 feet wide, and it's about three feet tall. And yet, God's saying... I'm going to rebuild this city. I'm going to restore this city. I'm going to make it like you've never seen it. And I'm going to make it a place where righteousness dwells. You travel to Israel today, you're going to see all kinds of conflict. You're going to see people who kind of peacefully disagree one with another. You're going to see multiple cultures trying to exist side by side. You're going to see traffic just like we have here in L.A., except in some cases actually worse. When the mosque on the Temple Mount let out from Friday prayers, if you happen to be stuck on the ring road that goes around the old city, you're going to be there for a while. Not because it's a bunch of Christian tour groups, but because there's a whole bunch of Muslims that are coming out of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, coming through the Damascus Gate. And they walk right in the middle of the street. One day no weapon fashioned against you shall prosper. And every tongue that rises against you in judgment you shall condemn right now. That's not the case. But this righteousness that Isaiah sees here is going to be the righteousness of God which only comes by faith in Jesus Christ. And that is the reason that Paul in Romans chapter 11 quotes and says, one day all Israel will be saved. It's what he's seeing. Isaiah sees it, Paul sees it, and it still hasn't happened yet. But it will. And it might be sooner than you think. You might want to keep your bags packed if you're here tonight and you love the Lord. The way things are ramping up in the Middle East, you know. We might just be hearing a trumpet one of these evenings. You might be, uh, you might be on a very swift journey to meet the Lord in the clouds, Amen. And so when Jesus died, he he gives this invitation. Jesus, remember, said, "Father, forgive them," Amen. Plural, third person, them. Who's the them? Absolutely everyone. Anyone who believes, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That also included the Jewish people. It included Pilate. It included Caiaphas and Annas. Anyone who would confess and believe. And so when he died, he died not just for the sins of Israel, which obviously he did, but for the whole world for you, for me, for all of humanity. And so what was going on is, as the servant dies on the cross, as Isaiah sees this, he's basically setting up this invitation to the Gentiles. Say, look, if you will, come, seek the Lord. And that's the context of now chapter 55. Because even though when Jesus comes to Jerusalem and he looks and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You who stones the prophets who did not know the day of your visitation, here comes the king, and they don't see him. They're one minute shouting Hosanna, and by the end of the week, they're saying, we don't want this man to rule over us. They change their mind in a matter of days. Or well, one day, The Jewish people are actually going to see Messiah for who he is. That's why Zechariah said, then they will mourn him whom they pierced. They will look upon him and go, oh, it's him. But in the meantime, the invitation goes out to us. And I love this. So you have here in these two chapters this beautiful picture of exactly the intent of the gospel. It went to Israel first, the Jewish people, and then here in chapter 55, it goes to us as well. Now that's pretty strange to me, being as this was written by a Jewish man to Jewish people. Unless God was trying to communicate from outside of space and time so that we would understand that what Jesus said What Paul declared is absolutely true. That God desires all men to be saved. And that includes us. Ho, everyone who thirsts. Verse 1 of chapter 55. Come to the waters. You have no money. Come and buy and eat. Yes, come and buy wine and milk. Money without price. And so I, I believe that Isaiah is looking forward, not just to the age of grace, but to the very end of the age of grace, and actually beyond it, into the kingdom age. You know, one of the things that I've listened to a lot of argumentation back and forth, and you've probably seen it in the news as well, is kind of this, this whole concept that somehow Christianity has to be linked to free market enterprise and capitalism and all kinds of political agendas and those, those things. Let me be really clear, as far as the Bible is concerned, and I'm not saying that we ought to be socialists, as far as the Bible is concerned, the Bible actually teaches that we're supposed to care for one another's needs, and that God takes care of the needs of the poor. And in fact, he is against people who are not for the needs of the poor, and if you're not for the disadvantaged, you actually have God against you. So we need to be really careful about this conscripting God's character and saying, well, unless you're a venture capitalist, you can't be saved. Unless you believe in free market economies, you can't be saved. Because the Bible not only doesn't teach that, it actually says that that particular system is going to come crashing down in the last days. This system of what we would call Babylon, to where there's uber-wealth, And uber-poverty. Because right now in our world, there are far more poor people than there are rich people. There are far more people who are disadvantaged than people who are advantaged. And God doesn't like that. He hates it. He hates it when we take advantage of each other. We're supposed to care for each other the way he cares for us. God detests this extremist commercialism, if you want to look at it that way, that robs the poor. And sometimes I, I, I look, especially at Revelation 18, this commercial Babylon that's in view there, this, this system that makes, that makes literally slaves out of people with debt. Sometimes I look at it, it's like, "Man, Lord, you've you got to be a little bit upset about this. I believe he is. And I think the Lord is going to bring that system down one day. The financial pressure that is put on people. And so he says, look, you're going to be able to have no money and do just fine. Anybody looking forward to that day? Because right now that's not the case, amen? So this is looking forward into the future when the king rules, the king reigns, and things are the way he wants it to be. When there are no poor. When if you need milk, you can go get milk. When you need groceries, you can go get groceries. That's why one of the missions of the church is to always take care of the the poor. That's why we do what we do. Many of the things that we do are to that end. I got a video today from Nicaragua, and they're working on this part of the church that we're helping to fund down there to bring in people to be able to feed them. They're building a kitchen help feed people. Do we have people here who need help? Yes, we help them too. Pastor Rob, Pastor Dennis came back from the hospitals again today, feeding our nurses and doctors and security people. God loves everyone. He doesn't just love rich people. Matter of fact, I think rich people have a lot to answer for ultimately. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread, verse 2, and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen to me carefully, Isaiah says, and eat what is good and let your soul delight in its abundance. I think one day the Lord's just simply going to allow the earth to do what he intended it to do. You know, it's interesting when you look at the history of mankind on this earth, specifically Adam and Eve, Adam was not ever without a job. But Adam didn't have to work hard initially. He kind of just went around and tended the garden. It's like, everything's growing, everything's fine, I'm going to go pick this and take care of that. It was after sin that the sweat of the brow came in and the thistles and the thorns came. It was sin that ruined what was good. And so in that sense, I think Isaiah's given us a little view into the future, if you will, because when you look at what's going on in our world right now, it's pretty clear there's an advantage to being rich. God's not really up to that level of greed that everyone... He doesn't like it. He likes it when all of his kids are taken care of. Every last one of them. All. All. So he says, oh, you need it, come get it. No price, no money. Basically, he's saying our system is broken. If you need it, he says, basically, come and get it. There's going to be a day when God's going to fix some of the things that are wrong today. I can't wait. I don't know how many heart-rending stories you all have to listen to. I'm sure it's probably as many as I do. But sometimes I, I, I listen to brokenhearted people who don't know what they're going to do and I just say, why God? What, what are you trying to show us? What do you want us to do about this? When you see your brother has need, how can you who know the Lord say in your heart, be warm and be filled you can't harden your heart towards those things because the heart of God is to take care of people who don't have things. Incline your ear and come to me, he says. Hear and your soul shall live. Let me make an ever- everlasting covenant with you. The sure mercies of David. One day, King Jesus is actually going to reign from David's throne, amen? That's what your Bible says about the very last days. That's why it's important that he is both priest and king. It's why the genealogies and Luke and Matthew's gospel are there. It attaches us to both aspects of Messiah. He is the king. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he's also the lamb that was slain. So he's both things. And indeed, I've given him as witness to the people, a leader, a commander for the people. So Christ is going to come and sit on David's throne for surely... You shall call a nation which you do not know, and nations who do not know you. Now at this time, there was exactly one nation on the whole face of the earth that actually had the capacity to understand the one true God. That was the Jewish people, amen? God had spoken to them, God gave them the temple, God gave them the ordinances, God gave them the law, God gave them The Levites, God gave them the priests. God gave them everything. You look at the tabernacle, it's like this elaborate system of how do you relate to God. As they traveled around the desert, what did they take with them? The tabernacle, right? What was in the tabernacle? The very presence of the living God. Did anybody else have one of those? I can tell you the answer is no because how many gods are there? There's one, three persons. So the pillar of fire and the cloud, there's only one of those wasn't like you could go down. I think you can get that at Home Depot. No, there was one pillar of fire and one cloud, and it was with one people, and that was the Jewish people. But notice what God says. Surely you will call a nation you do not know. The Jewish people would be a light, ultimately, because Jesus is coming through the Jewish people, and nations who do not know you shall run to you. Isn't it crazy when you think about it? Jesus was Jewish, the disciples were Jewish, but most of the early church outside of Jerusalem ends up being Gentiles. Paul, who's a Jew, ends up writing to the Gentile world, the Roman world. That's because Jesus was also a light to the Gentiles, amen? You ought to be really thankful for that because looking around I'm not seeing a whole lot of people unless you're I don't see anybody wearing a a kippah, no head coverings. I think most of us are probably Gentiles here today. We ought to be really thankful for the promises that are here because the Lord, your God, he declares himself the Holy One of Israel for he has glorified you. How did he glorify us? By adopting us into his family. By saving us through the precious blood of Jesus Christ, by bringing us in, making us righteous the same way He makes everyone righteous, by imparting Christ's righteousness to us. That's the suffering servant of chapters 52 and 53, is now going to bring this to the whole world. The same salvation, these special blessings that would come upon all of us. Everybody can come. Every race, every tongue, every ethnic group, Jesus is Lord of all, amen? So Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, whether you're on earth or under the earth. won't even matter You're going to one day, even if you haven't confessed him, you're going to recognize that he actually is Lord. Notice the emphasis on hearing this. If you listen to it, you can come. If you hear it, you can reply. You, You can be brought into the same covenant, in essence, and it's not making a direct comparison between the Jewish people and Gentile believers. It's simply saying that when God makes a covenant, when God makes a promise, he's good for it. 100% of the time. But you have to seek him. What beautiful words for us tonight. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Amen? You know, you might not always be able to find the Lord. There is a time, and tomorrow is not promised to anyone, if you're here tonight, if you're watching online, if you watch this later, maybe listen to it as a podcast, let me be blunt, you don't have forever to make a decision for Jesus Christ. You have today. You have today. That's all you were guaranteed while you are yet breathing today. Wherever this today is for you, whether that's later and you're still around and you hear this, whether you're watching online, today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow is promised to no one. So seek him while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Paul would write to the church at Rome in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That ultimately understanding who God is comes by hearing the word of God in a general sense. That's the most common way that people have the gospel shared with them. Call upon him while he is near. You are no nearer to God than when the gospel is being preached. When the gospel is going forth, when you're hearing the sure word of the Lord, that is the closest you will ever be to that point in time for everyone. If you've made that decision, you're good. But if you haven't, you may not ever be any closer than you are right now. This might be it for someone listening. And that's not to scare anyone. The reality is we do not know when our last breath is going to be taken. I have buried an awful lot of people who thought they would live another day. Let us forsake, let the wicked forsake his way. You know, repentance is part of the package deal, isn't it? You can't claim the goodness, the grace of God. You can't claim to be a believer and claim also that you want to keep your sin. You have to forsake the wickedness. It doesn't mean that you're saved by forsaking the wickedness. That means that an understanding of the goodness of the gospel of grace is that you turn from your wickedness and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him And our God, for he will abundantly pardon. When God pardons, he pardons abundantly. Amen? He doesn't just kind of sort of forgive the things that you've asked for. You better believe and hope and pray. And it is also true that God forgives all of your sin, not just the ones that have come out of your mouth as confession. You confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive. That's an attitude of heart. That says, Lord, I agree with you. I was wrong. You were right. Forgive me. But God forgives all of our sin. Amen? Past, present, and future. Because if he doesn't, maybe you wake up tomorrow and you know if you're like me, any of you have metal bed frames? Connie and I had a metal bed frame. We got rid of that because I was tired of losing my salvation in the morning. Get up in the morning, you know, dog comes running over. It's like, oh, hi, Lonnie. And... Your one toe, your big toe goes on one side of the metal and the rest of your toes go on the other and all of a sudden, you've lost your salvation. <laughs> At least temporarily. Now, you know what I'm saying. It's like you may think something in your heart. You, you may, for a moment, be in that anger. You're driving down the freeway. You, you get taken advantage of. Someone hurts you and you have a thought that you know is not from God. You better hope. That it isn't you just got forgiven of your past sins or the ones that you've already, but it's all of them. It's every moment of every day the blood of Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness, amen? It's the picture here. He'll abundantly pardon. Make sure you seek him who abundantly pardons, Amen? I want you to see what comes next. And if you don't have these verses underlined, if you don't have them highlighted, if there maybe isn't a dog ear on this page, if you don't stick a Post-it note in there and start writing things in there, it would be really good to do so. Notice verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. Can I get an amen? amen? Amen. Amen. And amen, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. This is some of the most freeing portions of the word of God that, I, that exist. I testify to this truth. Let me say yes and amen to you. I don't know everything. So you may call me and ask me a question. I may not have the answer. I was on the phone today with Lisa. All I could do was what she was doing was just cry. Honestly. I don't know why a pastor is laying in intensive care, intubated, in a medically induced coma, who loves the Lord, has a flock and a family. I don't know. I can't tell you. It makes no sense to me. To me, that ought to be some child molester. That should be somebody who really deserves to be there. You see, that's how I think. That's my humanness. And man, am I glad that his ways are above my ways, that I can't know everything he knows. And his ways are so different than mine. They are the distance from heaven to Earth. It's a long ways. I don't know why God does things like that. I would certainly do it differently. Just being honest in my flesh, I would do it differently. I'd put somebody else in that hospital bed. I'd probably put nobody in that hospital bed, honestly. I'm tired of seeing people sick and die. But somehow God knows what measure of pain we can handle. And what thing he wants to do with that pain. And strangely enough, the Lord doesn't call me every day and ask me what he should do. Amen? Look, I don't know if you guys get that phone call. I don't get that phone call. I doesn't call me up and say, well, Jeff, you know, I was just thinking about your life today. Uh, what do you want to do? I've yet to get that call. But I can tell you the phone calls I have gotten. Your son's in the hospital and we're not sure he's going to live. I'm not picking that one. I'm not picking that one, church. I'm missing that opportunity right there somehow the Lord knew that that needed to happen in my life. That one experience is largely responsible for the man I am today. For the compassion that I have for other people. For the understanding I have when someone says why? Why? How come you let this happen in my life? I am really thankful that God's ways are so much higher than mine because I would have not experienced that and I would not be who I am today without it. Church, as you're watching online, God knows what he's doing. He never messes up. You do. I do. I look at his word and sometimes I miss what he's saying. Sometimes I I think I've got it right. But those things that God allows into our lives that we would probably skip if we had the opportunity are likely the very things that are going to be most used in your life in the future. So don't despise them. Don't think you know better. If God's put you in a situation, he's done so because he knows what you need. His ways are so far above yours that you cannot possibly totally understand all that he's doing. You may not see it until a long while later. You may not see it till you get home to heaven. But he's good. And his mercy endures forever. And he loves you like you can't imagine. And he would never, ever, ever intentionally put something in your life that will harm you permanently. It may hurt. It may hurt a lot. It may cause you even agony in the moment. But He is working out for your good all things to them who love Him. I have to just commit my life to knowing He's right. I have to commit my life to understanding that his way is always best. It's not best most of the time. It's best all the time. Whatever he plans, whatever he purposes, he will bring it to pass if we simply commit our way to him and say, yes, Lord. we'll see you through Isaiah brings this all to a close for as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven those two things are pictures of God's word his blessing and do not return there but water the earth and bring it forth and bud that he may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word. He's telling you what those two things are, both the rain and the seed, the snow and the seed. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I have sent it. Just as we are studying God's word tonight, so it is that the word is life to us all day, every day. As Paul wrote to Timothy, for all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Peter understood it that these things, these words were the writings of holy men as they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. the word that's come into your life tonight, the word that's come into your life every time you read the word, will always do what God intends it to do. Always, if you let it. Or you can fight it. You can say, no, Lord, I'm not going to do that. Or you can work with it and say, yes, Lord. Our minds are supposed to be renewed and transformed by the hearing of the word. Amen. The renewing of our minds occurs when God's thoughts overtake our old dead thoughts. The old man gets pushed out by the new man. We put off the old and put on the new. Amen. That's how you have victory, by the way. If you want victory in your life, let God kill off your old man. It's not your husband, ladies. That's your sin nature. The Word does that. The Word is like that, you know, those old Terminex commercials to where the bugs would be running across the floor and they'd go, ah, Terminex, and they'd flip over on their backs. And, that's sin when it comes in contact with the Word. When the Word is alive in you, that's what happens to sin in you. The Sin dies. Kills it off. Our lives on this earth are very much like a desert. and I don't know how many of you truly appreciate the desert here. I I do. I happen to love the desert. Sometimes to me the desert is almost more beautiful than the forest because there's such a stark contrast between the summer when it's 115 or 120 or more and it's dry and dusty and then you go during the spring and a little tiny bit of rain Notice what it says. The rain is like the word. A little tiny bit of the word falls on that dead, parched, dry desert floor. And what pops out? Wildflowers everywhere. You see, just under the dead dryness in your life is the potential for the seed to burst forth when the word is watered. When the word is watered in your life, when the Holy Spirit pours into you and that seed takes root, it brings up beautiful things. And Isaiah sees this. It's just this wonder of what God's word does in us. And I just want to encourage you, and you can go on our website and pull up the reading plan. It's very easy to do. But bathe yourself in the Word. Make sure that you're drinking it in. Let your life be a garden. For you shall go out with joy, verse 12, and be led out with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you, and the trees of the field shall clap their hands. This is what happens. These are the results of the word of God. And instead of the thorn, there'll be a cypress tree. Instead of a briar, there'll be a myrtle tree. For it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. That the word that takes root in your life will be a forever sign of the goodness of the Lord. The mercies of the Lord, the bounty of the Lord, the peace of the Lord. The sower, the seed is simply the word as it sprouts, as it's watered. God's word takes root in our lives and it causes us to have that joy that He desires for us to have. Make sure. That you mark this chapter chapter and Study it well. These promises are yours, church. They're yours. They belong to you as a child of God. Take them in, drink them in. God wants to water your life. He wants your life to bud with joy and peace. He knows you don't know everything, but thank God he does. And if we'll trust him, the life that you see lived out here is yours for the taking. No briars, no thorns, beautiful trees and peace. That's what God does when you seek Him, when you come after Him, when you follow Him, you rest in Him. When you grow in Him, you grow away from the things of this world. They grow strangely dim, amen, in the light of his glory and grace, amen. Stand together and we'll pray. If you're here tonight and if you heard this message and you have yet to commit your life to Christ, today is the day of salvation, I would encourage you to not leave, we have Prayer warriors available. We'd love to pray with you in our prayer room. Simply go there after service and say, hey, "What do I need to do to know Jesus? Repent, confess, believe." For us, Father, we come to you, and we want to give back to your Word, to you, your Word that your Word would change us. That you would work your work in our lives and your spirit would turn these words into truth for us. That you'd enrich us and cause us to grow and sprout new beautiful flowers through your grace. That you'd be with us this week and keep our lives steadfast in you. We, We know, God, that you have more for us to experience and We know we miss sometimes because we don't stop to honor you. And so tonight we honor you. We give you an ability to speak into our lives something fresh, something new. So Lord, help us to grow in your word. Thank you that we don't have to know everything because you do. Help us to rest in that. Give you our lives afresh and anew in Jesus' name. God's people all set.